Hello, it's Mike. It's Juneteenth, and we don't have a new show today, but since we have a large archive that goes back many years, I wanted to bring forward a couple of interviews about civil rights or the African-American experience. And one of the interviews I'm going to air is with Dax Devlin Ross, who wrote about the issue of black juror exclusion. And it just constantly amazes me that when it comes to the criminal justice system and civil rights and African-Americans, there are very serious issues, but there seems to be very little correlation between the most serious issues and the issues that get the most attention. Now, sometimes it's issues worthy of attention that get a disproportionate amount of attention. Sometimes it's some issues that get exaggerated. I don't want to speak too generally, but I will say when you hear about what Dax Devlin Ross is talking about, it is a major issue, a major concern. No one really ever talks about it. And even though this interview took place in 2015, it is far from being remedied. Black juror exclusion. In fact, when I said the phrase, did your mind have to do a little work? Wait, what does that mean? It means that black people are excluded from juries. But when you hear of other phrases, you immediately know that that is either a shorthand or a description of an issue you've heard many, many, many times. So I just wanted to play that interview. And then I wanted to play Brenda Wineapple, who wrote an excellent book about the post-Civil War period immediately after that, the Radical Republicans, the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, the decisions that left America torn asunder and left us in the state we are now, which is that We look at the period after the Civil War, maybe we say the war was won, but the fight was not over. Reconstruction is a period that we're still grappling with. And Brenda Wineapple from this interview in 2019 is going to talk about the big executive branch and federal decisions that made that the case. So I hope you enjoy these interviews on this June 19th, Juneteenth, Dax Devlin Ross from 2015 and Brenda Wineapple from 2019. A new case the Supreme Court will be considering the next term is Foster v. Humphrey. It is about black juror bias, excluding black people, African-Americans from jurors. It's actually a much bigger issue than even the Supreme Court is taking on, as Dax Devlin Ross has been on this show to talk about. A few months ago, after reporting in the uh, Virginia Quarterly Review, he went to North Carolina, found some pretty egregious examples. And if you just look at the proportion of jurors that are white and that are black, it doesn't at all reflect the proportion of our society that's black. Well, Dax is back. We're going to talk about this Supreme Court case, and we're going to talk about the issues. How are you, Dax? Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me back again to talk. Absolutely. Can you tell us, I guess we let's, let's start by the big picture. African Americans, 14% or so of the population, what percentage of jurors are they? Oh, God. I don't think there's any clear-cut data around that, and that's part of the challenge right now. There's this kind of scattershot. You have 
work that obviously was done in North Carolina, which I, you know, I was able to, you know, dig up, but that wasn't work that I had done. It was done by some Michigan state law professors. And there's been some work done in Louisiana that shows some pretty egregious proportions in terms of, I think, three to one odds of, uh, uh, in terms of white, black, uh, you know, making it onto a trial. So, and so you have three times more likely, three times more likely, exactly. And in North Carolina, it was around two, two to one likelihood. So if two to one is okay with you, fine, but three to one is pretty egregious. But those are the ones that we have a handle on. And this just isn't really, that really is only scratching the surface because we don't know what other jurisdictions are doing. So what are the facts that the Supreme Court will be hearing in the Foster v. Humphrey case? Um, the, the Foster v. Humphrey case, as I understand it at least, is, you know, first of all, it's important to note that this is a case that, you know, that's, you know, nearly 30 years old. I mean, this is a, originally was decided back in the, the late 1980s. So Justice. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, and this has been in the, the pipeline of the courts for, for all that time, pretty much. It's, you know, his, his lawyers have been fighting for appeals, and you know, habeas, habeas appeals. But the point of the matter is that, you know, here is a young black man. He was 18 at the time, and he was accused of and convicted of killing a, a white woman in, in the state of Georgia. He was convicted of that, obviously, and he was also sentenced to die. It was later found out many, many years later that the prosecutors, after the notes were turned over, prosecutors had excluded all of the of, uh, eligible, when we talk about eligible black jurors, there were four of them. And moreover, that in those juror notes that those prosecutors maintained, there were highlights next to, or those names were highlighted, those four black jurors were highlighted. Moreover, there was a statement at the end of the trial, when the sentencing phase in which the prosecutor made a statement, something to the effect of, about ghettos and, and wanting to make sure that we don't, we have to, we have to send, we have to send a message to, to the people living in the ghettos that this is not going to be tolerated. I'm paraphrasing, but that is mm-hmm, the extent mm-hmm. of what it was said. So those are the facts today. Murder, white woman, black man, jurors excluded the perception or at least the, the, the perceived notion is that those black folks were excluded because of their race. And mm-hmm. that is the, a question that has been in, in dispute uh, for the last 30 years. Okay, so this is rare in that they chronicle their racial, at least being aware of the race of the jurors. Mm-hmm. It probably goes on all the time where the prosecutors know not to even make that note. It's racial consciousness. Mm-hmm. So the question of whether or not racial consciousness equals racial bias and discrimination I think is one that is really one of the reasons that I imagine the Supreme Court has taken this on because there are other cases in which there are juror notes that have been found that are even more blatantly discriminatory. You came across some in your reporting. In the North Carolina case, there was actually one of the trials, one of the cases that I looked at in North Carolina, there were juror notes in which the prosecutor wrote down black wino and, you know, lives in a black neighborhood. And so these were these were explicitly discriminatory statements, whereas highlighting the black jurors or potential jurors and noting that they are black or African-American, the question of whether that's discriminatory in and of itself or is that evidence of intending to keep them off of a jury is the kind of question that needs to be answered. So what did they do in your North Carolina case when you came across insults to black people and the juror and well, the uh, uh, prosecutor's notes? Well, in those in those cases, and that's sort of what's still happening in, uh, in North Carolina, those were the Racial Justice Act uh, cases, and those were based around a law that has since been repealed by the governor of North Carolina. But those were a part of four cases that were heard, and they were all heard by the same judge, Judge Gregory Weeks, who's now retired. And there, in all those cases, he found that there was intentional discrimination. Statistically, he also found evidence that went beyond the statistics in the case of actual notes. The question, the issue with North Carolina now is that all of those cases are being appealed, and it's been about nine months, 10 months almost, and the uh, Supreme Court in North Carolina still has yet to actually issue its ruling on whether or not you know, those decisions will be uh, repealed. 
even if Foster wins his case, how much of a triumph will it be or how much of a correction of this uh, societal ill will it be? Because you could see the Supreme Court issuing a ruling as they do with, say, the Voting Act, that unless it's, okay, we won't allow exclusion of black jurors if you could explicitly prove it with written down notes. And so they won't go on just, if you show me the statistics and you show me that white people are three times as likely to get on a jury, that might not be good enough. You have to have the, you have to have the racism written down. And what I know about racism in 2015 is people aren't writing it down anymore. Yeah. So this is the thing. I actually... I have somewhat of an optimistic perspective because my my view is that there have been a number of cases that have happened since the Batson. So this is the this is all stemming from 1986, about the you know the, the Batson uh, the Batson decision, which was sort of uh, at the time it was believed to be the sort of seminal decision that was going to really roll back the discrimination that was happening at the the jury selection stage. It did not do that, mm-hmm. right? So there were a series of cases that have happened since then that have come to Supreme Court. One was Millerell versus Dretke that happened in the mid 2000s, in which the Supreme Court said that it could look outside. We could look outside of the you know the sort of statements made at the trial and look at some of the evidence. In that case, it was jury shuffling. They were moving jurors around to get sort of the kind of juror pool they wanted. There was also evidence of a, of a handbook that was being used by prosecutors in, in Dallas at the time. Those were pieces of evidence that the court was able to take into consideration in making its decision. Another case came along a few years later saying that, you know what, you don't have to prove explicit, deliberate. You just need to find that it's substantially a substantial you know, level of proof to indicate some kind of discrimination. So I think at this time around, it seems as though maybe the court is ready to make I would hope at least a stronger statement around what's going to be allowable during the peremptory challenges, because that's where this all lives, because each prosecutor and the defense are allowed a certain number of peremptory challenges. Those are challenges that they can make to potential potential generals that will not be questioned. They don't have to give their reason why. No reason why. So that's going to have to, and some people, I think, observers think that maybe there will be some modification to this process. And we can go back to what Justice Thurgood Marshall said back in the Batson trial and and his concurrence, which was that, listen, we really need to ask ourselves, do we need to have this peremptory strike system at all? Because if you look at, you know, if you look at England, they actually have a random jury selection process. They actually do it by randomization. I'm not saying that's necessarily better, but yeah. there are alternatives out there to having a prosecutor provided and a, and, a, and a defense attorney provided with a certain number of strikes that they can make without any explanation. And when you can provide a racially neutral explanation for why you struck a black person and say, well, you know, I didn't. There are some really ridiculous ones out there, you know their hair was too long or they had a child the same age as the person who's been any number of things that you can come up with. Yeah. A couple bigger questions. Besides the fact that jurors are excluded by prosecutors, there are other real reasons why there are so many fewer black people on jurors than there are in the populations. What are some of those reasons? Jury selection process starts with you have to show up. You know, you get summoned, you get summoned to come to court. There are real legitimate issues that folks might feel around economic hardship. It, will I lose my job if I show up? You know, even if I found part-time labor, will I? So that's an economic vulnerability. Then when you actually get there, there's the initial process by which a judge asks you, are you able to make a decision to put someone to death if it comes to that? And 
if you are unable to, to answer affirmatively at that phase before the peremptory strike challenges that take place between the prosecutor and the defense, then you are automatically excluded from the trial. And we know through plenty of years of data that African-Americans and other populations as well are less likely and are less motivated to vote for a death penalty. So therefore, they're excluded even before the prosecutor goes through the process of sort of excluding the jurors and pruning down to the kind of jurors, juror pool that it wants to have. Since most prosecutions are plea bargains and they don't go to trial, how will changing, if we can change, the composition of juries, how will that actually change justice in America, do you think? Punishments? I tend to think that one of the problems is that unless we're really willing to address the challenge of prosecutor discretion, then we're really not going to be able to have, we're not, we don't, we're not demonstrating the will to make the kinds of changes to our justice system. So ultimately, prosecutors will say, I need to be able to make these kinds of decisions based on instinct and strategy. That's their defense mm-hmm. for why they want to be able to maintain the ability to make peremptory strikes. I just don't, I, I feel like as a nation, we have to be really willing to tackle the hard problems, as we talked about with the plea bargain system. If 97% of the people who are were actually convicted of crimes or actually in, this in the federal system are, are convicted by way of plea bargain, then only 3% of those are actually going to trial. And in that 3%, we have to then deal with the juror exclusion. So is this really the justice system that we right. actually, or is this some kind of a plea system that we've and, created? And if, if a trial becomes less of an automatic uh, conviction, and you know, I know of no jurisdictions where the conviction rates are in the 90s for going to trial, and some of that is yeah. you don't take it to trial unless you think you can right. win. But if it becomes more of a question mark, then you would imagine it would filter down to plea bargaining becoming, you know, there's less of a sort of Damocles hanging over the accused's yeah. head. Yeah. yeah. It has to be tackled from both, from all different perspectives. So if there's a way to trick down that sort of justice from the Supreme Court's perspective, and and that's that's creating more of a safeguard at that decision-making stage, which is jury selection. And I think that it becomes somewhat of a deterrent. If there's some way, and maybe it's that the Supreme Court says something like, you know what, you're going to have to, you're only going to get a certain number of strikes moving forward in in certain cases. I don't know if that will do that, but they're going to reduce the number of of potential peremptory strikes, or they're going to lower the threshold or lower the standard, you know, for finding um, evidence of discrimination that might be also what what direction. Those can potentially be deterrents because I think the point you made earlier, which is that 1987, we're going to find evidence of discrimination of prosecutors. But now, are people really going to make and maintain records like that that can possibly be viewed by all and and, and pulled apart? All it's really saying is don't keep records. Yeah. And And that's scary. And even if, maybe it's not even conscious. Maybe it's not even that these people have ill will in their hearts. But if you do an analysis and you show that black jurors are still two or three times more likely to be excluded than white jurors, maybe we should address that. Well, I think that we should address it. But I think part of the challenge is that they, prosecutors would argue that, listen, if you look at the other side, defense attorneys are doing the exact same thing on the I opposite know, end. but the argument against that is a defense attorney represents a defendant. A prosecutor is for the people. He doesn't... I know he wants to win, and I know the argument is you got to give me the tools to win, but it's the people versus Smith, right? Not you, prosecutor versus Smith. And if you're executing the will of the people, I mean, that's why the Supreme Court is weighing in on these things. Well, you know, this is these are... First of all, there's a couple things. There's, these are elected positions, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about elected positions... And we were talking about the fact that these are careers and we're talking about people who are being as prosecutors who are being judged in large measure around their success and their failure. And they're looked at. And what's the, 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 the reason that voters will often vote for them 
uh, is because of their record. Now, there are definitely some folks who are, and I go back to what's happening in Dallas under this, under this, uh, the, the, the district attorney in Dallas. Uh, his name is Craig Watkins. The work that's happening down there around exonerations, around really trying to look at use DNA analysis to root out wrongful convictions. I think when you are when you have courageous motivated prosecutors who want to see change. And there are a lot, I don't doubt that there are lots of them out there. We need to hear more of their voices. We need to, we do need to hear more of their voices. I do think that there are ways to address the system. But ultimately, people are, there's, these are careers, and often they're dealing with criminals, and they're dealing with what they consider to be people who are, you know, who need, who have not, didn't, if they didn't commit this crime, they committed some crime. Or and if they don't stop them this time, they'll do something else. So they see themselves enacting the will of the people by getting folks off the street who would otherwise be causing all sorts of mayhem. Now, do I agree with that? Probably not. Dax Devlin Ross first came to our attention when he wrote about black jury exclusion in Virginia Quarterly Review last fall. That was in partnership with the Nation Institute's Investigative Fund. Also, he's working with the Nation Institute's Investigative Fund to cover the story of plea bargaining and I should also say, just because Dax is such a nice guy and it's such a good cause, half of what he does, is it more than half? You could say about three quarters. <laughs> three quarters of what he does. He works with an organization. I, I run an organization. Run an organization called After School All-Stars. And they're doing a World Trade Center stair climbing event here in New York City, October 22nd. Climb starts at 5, 6 p.m. post-climb party. Get all your climbing in in the hour. After School All-Stars, Arnold Schwarzenegger, what, he started the after He founded the organization 23 years ago. Hot 97 is going to be sponsoring the event. They're going to be on the ones and twos. They're going to have a couple of their, their morning shows going to be there climbing. Yeah. We want people to come out. It's going to be fun. We interview a lot of journalists on the show. Very rarely do you have a plug <laughs> like this, but I want to give it to you. Thanks, Dax. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This is fun, always. President Andrew Johnson took office by essentially tongue-kissing the Bible, and things went down from there. I will read a passage from the new fantastic book by Brenda Wineapple called The Impeachers, The Trial of Andrew Johnson and the Dream of a Just Nation. Tell me if this seems familiar. The moral verdict against Andrew Johnson had already been rendered. Johnson had endorsed rebels and rebel legislature. He'd fired competent people. He'd abused the pardoning privilege. He'd blocked or subverted civil rights legislation. And he was obstructing ratification of the 14th Amendment. Okay, we can also add, and it's not in that passage, he stood idly by as race-related riots took lives in large South American cities. The question remained, had the president committed illegal acts and hence demonstrably impeachable ones? That mm -hmm. is the center of the mm -hmm. impeachers. And Brenda Wineapple is here. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. So it's impossible not to read this <laughs> as maybe as all great history does prove to be impossible to read without thinking about today's events. But it's especially impossible to read this. Yet I have to know, when did you start it? I actually started this book six years ago, yeah. deep in the Obama administration, when people wondered why I was writing about the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. It was the most remote, dusty topic that many thought that I could think of. Now, um, people think I'm brilliant and prescient. So. Yeah. By the time you were putting the finishing touches yeah. uh, on it, was Trump president? Yes, yeah. definitely. Do you think that affected anything in the you book? Know, well, you know, I mean, 
my answer is no, and I know it will be hard for people to believe because none of us lives in a vacuum, and the anxiety that we all experience is, you know, it's not daily, it's hourly, mm-hmm. So, and I'm experiencing it. But there's a way in which when I concentrate and I put myself back in the 19th century, to a certain extent for me personally, it's a kind of escape. Yeah. So while, of course, I know what's going on, um, first of all, I made a conscious decision not to deal with the present. And that was before there was a Trump. I knew I wasn't going to talk about Clinton, you know, except in passing at yes. the end of the book. I knew I wasn't going to talk about Nixon, same thing. And of course, I wasn't going to talk about Trump. When I was finishing the book, there was enough about Johnson and about that period to compel me to stay focused. So when he becomes president, when Lincoln is assassinated, what did his fellow politicians, America, what the country, what did they think of him? What did they think we could expect out of Andrew Johnson? Well, at first they thought he was going to be wonderful. Um, the the South had a, a champion, it seemed like. And in the North, he'd been a war Democrat. He stood for the Union. And during the war, he, would, he was noted for saying treason is a crime and it must be punished. So everyone was very hopeful. And also, I think, they're very hopeful because they want to be hopeful. It's after a presidential assassination. That never happened before. But he soon exposes himself in personal decisions, but in some large policy stances as being not just inadequate to the moment, but really um, gumming up the work, standing athwart the agenda of the radical, what we call, what were called the radical Republicans, but now we know to be the individuals on the right side of history who saw the Civil War ended. Now we must actually and in fact eradicate slavery. Exactly. Johnson had no interest in this, really. No, I mean, he's he's fine if... You know, he had said toward the end of the war, okay, if we can save the Union and have to get rid of slavery, I'll put up with it. In other words, you know, if that's the cost for ending the Union, whereas the people who were called radicals or today, as you say, right side of history, those are the people who said, no, we don't just end slavery. We get rid of its effects. We make sure that the people who are enslaved have an equal opportunity and are treated like human beings, which they are. So in that sense, they're a completely polar opposites to one another. So before we get to the Tenure of Office Act, which (laughs) is the thing that he was, well, most of the thing he was impeached on, Mm -hmm. what else did he do that was unpresidential or possibly criminal? Well, um, the criminality is is a kind well, let's of murky. Call it a high crime in misdemeanor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or, or <laughs> you know, well, first of all, he's a, he's abusing Congress. Um, he's so angry at the Republicans who are opposing him that he begins to basically call for their execution. He says, "Hang Thaddeus Stevens is one of them. Hang Charles Sumner." So he he incites the mob that goes to these rallies, basically, and he's one of them, Mm -hmm. and he believes that. So it's abusive, but then it's also abuse of power, because once he's in office, he takes the oath of office in April— Congress is is in recess. It's not supposed to meet till December. And he won't call a special session to deal with the effect of war, which is right there, is a usurpation of the function of Congress, the legislative branch. So he's he's taking the executive branch and he's making that all powerful, which is horrifying that. And then he obstructs justice. What he's doing is once certain laws are passed or, or, or 
Congress pass, tries to pass laws like civil rights legislation that he vetoes it. So he is pushing back at Congress. And then he goes out and he basically tries to um, impede the ratification of the 14th Amendment. He doesn't want it passed by the states. And he, and he talks to people in various legislatures and he says, don't pass it, don't pass it, which is dreadful when you think about it. So for all this, yeah. without this thing called the Tenure of Office Act, he might not have been impeached. Well, that's true. Yeah. You know, so tell and, us about what that act is and what were the details. Yeah, the details of that act, the act was was commonly understood later you know, in the tw- early 20th century, late 19th century, as a way to ensnare Johnson. It wasn't at all. The Tenure of Office Act was passed, and it is dubious, of dubious mm-hmm. constitutionality, but it was passed to protect people, particularly in the cabinet. And so what it stipulated is that anyone who had been appointed with the advice and consent of Congress could not be fired without the advice and consent of Congress. So that meant that the Senate, in other words, would have to okay the firing of an Edwin Stanton. And they weren't going to do that. Edwin Stanton, Secretary of War, the man Lincoln called Mars. He called him Mars. And many people... Pretty much the most important American after Lincoln's assassination. Well, absolutely, because Grant is more or less on the sidelines, you know, because he's not fighting anymore. Stanton was still in office. He was still in the cabinet. Lincoln didn't want to let him go in 64 when he wanted to retire. The guy's getting tired. And he stayed in to oversee the transition. And then the radicals didn't want him to leave either because he was protecting the military. And it was important to protect the military because Congress eventually passed what were known as reconstruction laws. And the military was to stay in the South to help register and protect black men and white loyalist at the polls. And Johnson didn't want that. He didn't want these laws to take effect. So he was firing and changing people in the military to get his own cronies in, for want of a better word. So the Tenure of Office Act, then the short version, is passed to to protect people like Stanton. And I think Congress almost naively, in retrospect, but Congress didn't expect Johnson to violate it, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, that is really an abrogation of the law. And of course, Johnson violated it. Right. And that created the actual cause, the technical cause for impeachment, because now you could say, aha, this is a big deal. So stipulating that we had never gone through impeachment before, it was unclear what, con- it's still unclear what yeah, constitutes a high crime misdemeanor. But I think you make the good case, and I think Thaddeus Stevens, who was perhaps the most important member of the House of Representatives at the time, thought this too, that the impeachers in the House made a mistake. It was too narrow. It was too much based on this letter of the law. And they should have just swung for the fences and listed <laughs> everything he did to not uphold his oath of office in yes, general. Yes, that was Stephen's point of view. Yeah. And it was a point of view that that wasn't the dominant point of view. Stevens was the most, as you said, the most important person in the House. He had been for a very, very long time. He was so annoyed at the sort of legalistic 
articles of impeachment that he insisted that the 10th and particularly the 11th article were more broadly worded and really did have to do with obstruction, abuse of power, right. you know, degradation of Congress. So that's what I was going to ask yeah. you. A lot hinged on that 11th, was, which was, here are a bunch of specific things. The 11th then became the catch-all. Right. Does that rebut the argument that the one I just made, that <laughs> the impeachers made a mistake? I mean, if the Senate wanted to, they could have they could have convicted mm-hmm. based on just the 11th and he'd have been out of office he as much a- as if they had convicted on all of them. Yeah, that's right. And that's why they put the 11th up first. Mm-hmm. They decided the the what they call managers, people prosecuting in the House, people prosecuting um I mean, in the Senate, but they're the representatives. They had to invent that whole process. Well, that's another interesting thing, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because there's no blueprint for right. it. You know, there's there's you know no maps. And so and and they Nixon in, would innovated. have and Clinton did essentially use the man- man- manager yeah. process, which is interesting because if people are talking about impeachment today, they really should go back, you yeah. know, and and think about what happened in Johnson because it was the first full blown impeachment that really had to do with the presidential office and the dignity of the presidential office and and what a president is supposed to be and what the balance of power is in that particular case. But to go back to your question, mm-hmm. did they? What should they have done? You know, it's hard to know because there were other issues involved in Johnson's acquittal. One had to do with the fact that that Republicans, particularly moderates, wanted Grant to be president. So they really didn't want to get too involved in impeachment because it might mean that a radical would succeed Johnson and make it harder for Grant to win the presidency. Right. We should point out that Johnson had no vice president. So the speaker pro tem of the uh, Senate, Meade, who was... Wade. Wade. That's okay. Wade. Is waiting in line. And he was a very, very... Divisive, controversial figure. figure. Yes, yes. yes. I mean, his monetary policies. He actually, think of this, thought women should vote. That's how controversial <laughs> he was. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah, you know. yeah. And he so, believed in what, greenbacks? Greenbacks. That was the <laughs> currency. He went, you know, paper money. Crazy. Um, yeah. So, yeah. you know, so so these people who were considered fanatics were Radical. So, <laughs> so ahead of their time. So nobody wanted to touch Wade. So that was a consideration. This is apart from legal and moral issues. And the other consideration had to do with money. So as much as there are resonances, there was one or two things that were entirely absent. So mm-hmm. one was polling. If the <laughs> if the people of that, yeah. if the politicians then could have had a sense about what the public said it wanted, do you think anything would have changed? I don't really think so. Johnson was a Democrat. This is how I would put it in that case, and he was shocked that the party didn't nominate him for the '68 convention because he thought he did everything they wanted. This is how out of touch he was. Johnson didn't have many allies. Um, The presidential office and the idea of impeaching someone was hard for several moderates to swallow, regardless of bribes or anything like that. How do you think how this played out affected the grand presidency, reconstruction, um, the rest of the century? I think that the effects, you know... 
I'm of two minds about it. On the one hand, I think the effects were devastating because it seems to me that, as I wrote, that you know the country was at a crossroads. And had Johnson been different, and if Johnson had been gotten rid of, in a sense, that it was very possible for people like Wade or Sumner, or and there are many others who are in Congress and outside of it, too, you know, certainly, um, certainly black activists, you know, and um, the clergy, um, who really could have moved the country in a direction that would have been toward more equality, more toward the you know the values that were enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, without sounding too kind of you know highfalutin about it. But that's what they really believed. So I think it was devastating. By the same token, did it affect Grant? And no, I don't really think it did. I mean, in a certain sense, Grant slogan, his political slogan was let us have peace. So he could could get into the presidency by promising a a calmer, less controversial demeanor. And and that's in a sense what he tried to provide and did. And and he got rid of the Klan for a while. But, you know, but then again, Johnson had allowed it to to raise its ugly head. So you have to get rid of something that shouldn't have been there in the first right. place. People people dismissed the Klan as a myth yes. during this time. They said that the people they said that the radicals are just making it up. You know, it's just kind of they're just trying to incite uh, fear. Mm-hmm. Scare old ladies in their teacups is yeah. what they say. Yeah, yeah. I, I, wrote, I was thinking of <laughs> Kaiser Sozi, a spook story for. Yeah, for us to exactly. tell our kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The name of the book is The Impeachers, The Trial of Andrew Johnson and the Dream of a Just Nation. The author of the book and my guest has been Brenda Wineapple. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And that's it for The Gist. We will be back tomorrow. Corey Juarez, the producer of the show, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Talk to you tomorrow. Enjoy your day off.